This episode of Bright Hearth is brought to you by Garlands of Grace and our supporters at Patreon.com. The majority, though they are sometimes frequent readers, do not set much store by reading. They turn to it as a last resource. They abandon it with alacrity as soon as any alternative pastimes come up. It is kept for railway journeys, illnesses, odd moments of enforced solitude, or the process called reading oneself to sleep. They sometimes combine it with desultory conversation, often with listening to the radio. But literary people are always looking for leisure and silence in which to read and do so with their whole attention. When they are denied such attentive and undisturbed reading, even for a few days, they feel impoverished. C.S. Lewis, An Experiment in Criticism Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Bright Hearth. Brian and Lexi here. I'm very excited. I don't know if you're as excited as I am about this, to be honest. I am out of my mind. (laughs) I don't think you're as excited as I am. This is like a Christmas gift. I feel like we're giving our listeners. (laughs) Happy Christmas, everybody. (laughs) We are going over our top 2022 books for different categories. I think I'm going to do a full annotated bibliography on our Patreon page of my reading list, but... We're just going to do some of our top favorites from this year tonight, right, Bray? Yes. Yes. So, well, first of all, did you set any reading goals for yourself this year? Because I did no. want to talk a little bit about that. You didn't No, do I that. didn't. Did you? Okay. My reading goal was to get through all of the institutes and that really big book I read on the arts. Oh, yeah. By Van Loon. So Andrea gave me that idea because she read all of Shakespeare's works last year. And she kind of divided up. I think she did four days a week, so she didn't get behind. At least this is what I ended up doing. And she divided the day, the the book up by the number of pages she needed to read or yeah. something so that she knew how many pages to read a day. And she got through Shakespeare's complete works last year. So that's it's impressive. What, yeah, that's what I did with the Institutes and the Arts. And I finished months earlier than I thought I would. So... After my 200 book year. That's what I was going to. I vowed my, I vowed not to make any reading goals for a good five or 10 years. Well, I think you can rethink them though. They don't have to be a number. Like, yeah, I could do it different. I, that's what I've kind of, I've never actually done a number. I usually set a topic or something else to read about. But um, we talk about that a little bit. Why did you do that 200 I just wanted year? to see if I could. And how did you do it? Uh, I had to read a book every 1.8 days. I think I ended up with 208 books. And I just read all the time. All the time I read. I wasn't doing any podcasts that I recall at that point or music. And we got rid of Netflix that year. Yeah, we pretty much just read all the time. Yeah. And it was a, a wild year for sure of reading. I was very, by the end of it, I was like, oh man, I'm tired of reading. I do feel like you've been <laughs> on a Tolkien and... Harry Potter rut since that year. <laughs> He's yawning. We have sick yes, kiddos mm-hmm. in our house right now. So, yes, we do. Indeed, we do. Okay, so you're not setting any goals for yourself next year. <laughs> no, I have no. I have many goals, but they're just not reading goals. I like my husband directed reading. I've been really enjoying that because I'm reading theology books I would not necessarily have read. And yeah. learning about stuff that I always have questions about. So ladies, maybe ask your husbands for some ideas for what to read next year. But let's get started. Let's start with our favorite fiction book for the year. What was your favorite fiction? You go first. 
Okay. <laughs> um, mine was actually David Copperfield. Really? Yeah. I thought about it all year. It was very disturbing in some parts. Turned out okay. But it was kind, It was a very, very haunting book. And there were so many lessons learned just listening to it that, I don't know, it was just a really masterful story. So I really, really enjoyed that book this year. I actually listened to it in January and I have thought about it so much this entire year. I don't think I've ever read David Copperfield. Oh, it was just now so that good. Now I think about it. And I'm trying to, th- I, I listened to that one because this was the year that I took up more audiobooks. Yeah. And that was kind of hard for me at first, but um, I really liked the narrator. Again, Andrea told me who the narrator was. I'll try to find it because he did such a good job and he's an actor we all know. So I can't find the exact, um, the internet is not working, but if you look it up on Audible, it is a black hat with white font on a blue background. And it, it had some really good examples of like how the plain virtuous woman is often overlooked but the foolish, beautiful wife cannot fulfill the task mm. of managing a husband in a household. That was like one of 50 bazillion things that I learned from that. But it was a really good one. I think everyone should definitely pick that up for a classic. Yeah, I'll have to read that one or listen to that one. I like listening to fiction and history and biography. Oh, I think those are the three best types of books to listen to. Those are the Not hardest non-fiction. for me. I started that Esalen book you told me to Wasn't read. Wasn't that fiction? Yeah. But you, you say that was the hardest for you to listen to, or fiction, history, and I'm biography? sorry, nonfiction. Oh, yeah, don't listen said, to nonfiction. Yeah, no, no I can't. No, listen to the three. Fiction, biography, and history are the I three that I like I've to listen to. I don't think I've ever done biography. I really like listening to biographies. Like the Churchill biographies, the Last Lion series. Oh, interesting. Are very good to listen to. They're like 50 hours each. Oh my! Or or fifty? Yeah, there's, it's a huge amount of uh, listening. I think maybe it's fifty some hours between the three. Canon Press has a lot of classics up, and I've been enjoying that they're adding the the classic worldview guides also because oh, I yeah. love to pair my classic readings with those worldview guides. So, what was yours? Well, I was thinking about it, and I think I think my favorite fiction books I read this year was not my was not an first time through read, but it was rereading the space <laughs> trilogy. I'm just laughing because <laughs> I like to reread. I, books. I'm just I wondering will... how many times did you reread Lord of the Rings this year? Uh, <laughs> maybe <laughs> twice. Oh, that's probably I thought maybe two to f- no more than that because, well, here's the thing <laughs> they came out with again. I listened to it because they came out with, Andy Serkis, who played... Oh, I remember you saying he that. He plays Gollum in the Peter Jackson films, which don't exist, but he plays Gollum. And Andy Serkis redid the... He did a new audiobook version. So you had to listen. Lord of the Rings. And I, I have both versions now, the classic, which is very good. And in some way, there are some parts I like better, and then there are some parts I like Andy Serkis better. But overall, Andy Serkis is, is just amazing. I probably listened to that two or three times this year. I still cry when I think of the book scene with Boromir. Yeah. It's such a good section. It is. So I, I really like to reread books. But uh, you fiction reread especially. the Space Trilogy? Yeah, the Space Trilogy is just so good for today. Yeah, did anything stick out to you post-2020 in that? Because it's been a couple years since I've read that. Yeah, I mean, that hideous strength is basically prophetic for 
<laughs> our time, the NICE, is pretty much like the a, a modernist government. So uh, if you're interested in a series that before really our modern, a lot of the specific things that he even talked about in the book or, you know, kind of quote unquote predicted came to pass. Um, Lewis was very prescient in that book and he had a lot of prophetic look at what it look, what totalitarianism looks like in, in a technocratic way. Um, so it's in, and also I think what he really gets, what Lewis gets is this kind of like the spiritual element of all technocracy and all statism is that it's ultimately not just an atheistic, even atheistic states are spiritual. They're demonically spiritual. So he he really gets that, and that comes from the book. Also just very entertaining, Mr. Boltitude, all the animals. It's just a weird book. Merlin shows up at one point. It is There's a weird book. travel. There's uh, like spiritual alien creature things. I, it sounds really weird. But you should, and all three books in the space trilogy are wildly very different. Di- I remember being very frustrated when I read it, and I was asking, like, is it supposed to be this vague in some areas and not in others? You were like, yeah, there, he's kind of trying to do something there. So I wonder if yeah. now reading it post twenty twenty, if it would make even more sense to me in a way. Yeah, and if you read Michael Ward's book on, yes, I want to read that. There's two books. One's a popular level, and then one's more in depth. But he goes through and explains why. His whole thesis of the Narnia heptology being uh, basically a book devoted to each planet in the medieval cosmology. Yeah. Uh, And so, like, his theory is that Lewis oriented the Chronicles of Narnia, where each book is devoted to what he calls the Donegality or the sense, like the sense of one of the the planets, like Jupiter or the, the moon uh, in the medieval cosmology. So, it's really interesting. But if you read Michael Ward, he references uh, the space trilogy as well in his Narnia theory because they're related. Okay, it's so really interesting. Years ago, I had that Michael Ward book recommended in order to understand a Christian cosmology. Yeah, Christian ordering of the universe. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it does. Okay, because in order to explain his idea, you have to understand the medieval cosmology. Okay, and. Part of it is that Lewis is like the last medieval man. Yeah, that's well, that's the thing is the more I've learned about that time period, the more I just am so frustrated because it really is so foreign to our modern mind that I, I know there's so much we're missing by not being immersed in it. Mm, yeah, so yeah. I'll have to read that then. Yeah, you Lewis was, I mean, before anything else in a way, a medieval scholar. Oh, he, what, he invented so, the, he brought dignity to the, term medieval literature it was definitely looked down upon before that yeah so i mean before anything else almost it's like maybe the most important part of understanding him is to understand his fascination with the medieval person in the medieval christian world what was it that you said he made some comment about how he read every single piece of literature on what genre was it yeah, before Lewis wrote his scholarly work, English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama, <laughs> is the title. Wow. He read every work of English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama. Like, he re- he literally read every single one that existed that we have extant. <laughs> so, I mean, Lewis was nothing if not devoted. And you... you when you un- when you understand this about him, you understand his fiction on a much richer yeah. level, and also like where he was getting this prescience 
about the future and about the issues mm, that modernity true. had introduced because he was thinking about it like, well, what would a medieval person think about this technological world we live in? So interesting. And they would have been horrified at some of the just things that we are totally comfortable with now. Mm-hmm. And I think Lewis understood that. It comes out in the Space Trilogy. It comes out in uh, the, the Chronicles of Narnia as well in, in many ways. If you look at like Charn, uh, the witch in Charn, mm-hmm. or um, what's another example? I can't think of This is embarrassing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. No, a Callerman has, there's some elements in Callerman too, but yeah, I mean, you, you see just the, the almost like horror of a medieval person looking at modernity. That's in, interesting. Hadn't thought about it like that in CS Lewis. I really like, um, I like this for Lewis, but I also will buy the Canon press editions of the classics for this reason that I just want the like introduction written by somebody that I trust. And so I really like Lewis's book. I think it's the one that's called God in the Dock and Other Essays. Or it oh, might yeah. just be called Other Essays by Lewis. Because he has a lot of really obscure introductions that he's writing to other pieces of literature yeah. that have really been insightful to understanding those pieces of literature. So I'll, mm. I'd like the canon ones for that reason too. Yeah. Next category was Christian nonfiction. Christian nonfiction. Okay, what was yours? My real number one is in the book everyone should read, so we're going to talk about that later. But the one that I chose for this was Rush Dooney's Law and Liberty. It's so good. I actually don't think I've read that. It's so good. All of his books are also on the Canon app. Huh. So it's been, he, I feel like he's maybe where a lot of reformed Christians have pulled the idea of modern medicine and black magic in alchemy. Like I've read huh. that in other places that are more modern writers. Like um, the soul of science talks about that. There's some other pastors I've listened to sermons where they talk about that, but rush Dooney is explaining it in the context of law and how law have, has changed and tyrannical governments and why the way they practice quote unquote science is really just alchemy. It's been really, really good. It hits a very broad Number of topics, pornography, inheritance laws, family government. I've really, I read another book by him this year. I don't remember what it was called. You'll have to get my annotated bibliography. Um, mm-hmm. About medical ethics though. And that one was also very good. I just, yeah, he's wicked smart, obviously. He's writing from another time period, which it's interesting to see them dealing with the same things we're dealing with today, but he's very clear. Like, he's a very, very clear author. Yeah, Rush Dooney, I think, is definitely the fountainhead for a lot of stuff in the theonomic world. Yeah. Especially. Yeah, he's helped me understand that, which is why I I read Law and Liberty, because when I fin there was some stuff in Calvin that kind of rubbed me wrong, but I was also like, well, is it because I'm an American? Like, I, I was trying to doubt myself. It was in terms of civil government. Yeah. And I have so many thoughts on that right now, but we've already talked separately about that. You and I wouldn't need to hash that out here, but um, Rush Dooney's book was recommended to me to make sure I have a balanced view of it. Basically. Mm, yeah. Missy yeah. told me to read it. She said, pastor Toby is taking them through their church, you know, with, you know, kind of the goal in mind that they would have a balanced view of that. So yeah, it's yeah. been very beneficial to read. And I think Christians today, in our political climate would definitely 
gain from it. Well, if you've been listening to Bright Hearth for any length of time, you know that we are all about productive Christian households, supporting one another in business endeavors worth doing, and we're all about modest, feminine Christian women, masculine Christian men. So we're so excited to be partnering for this episode of Bright Hearth with a sponsor, Garlands of Grace. Garlands of Grace makes beautiful feminine head coverings, uh, whether you're wearing a head covering or a headband just for fashion reasons or uh, as a covering for 1 Corinthians 11 sort of matters, we'd really commend them to you. And Lexi, uh, we were just looking at their organics line. What do you think about that? It's very cute. <laughs> they are very cute. They have a lot of floral prints, and it's. I think it's really unique to find companies that are willing to even go the extra mile and use organic fabric. So Yes, we know that our listeners are not just interested in getting the cheapest, quickest, flimsiest things they can get, but they want to get quality um, products made that are going to support Christian households. And so we would commend these ladies to you and their company. Uh, you can head to garlandsofgrace.com and you can see a huge variety of head coverings, head wraps. They have them for women as well as girls. And um, they also have those volumizers. What are those again? They help keep your head covering in place so it's not slipping off of your head. Yes. And if, uh, you know, Lexi is taking care of five children plus one in the womb on Sundays while I'm preaching and teaching and leading the service. So it is important that it's not slipping off of your head so easily when little people are kind of climbing and crawling over you. So that's been a help for you. Yep, I love it. Absolutely. Well, check it out there, garlandsofgrace.com. You can use the link in the description of this episode, and you support our show when you support them. So uh, thanks for listening, and now we'll get back to the episode. So what was your Christian nonfiction? Mine was a book that was published at the end of 2020, but I didn't get around to reading until this year. Um, and it was kind of, it was one of those books that everybody said, it's amazing. You have to read it. And uh, I, I was kind of like, ah, I don't know about the author. I mean, I know he's really smart and, um, you know, great writer, but I just, my association, I guess, mentally, because of some other things was kind of like, eh, hit or miss. So I hadn't read it yet. And I finally picked it up as um, we were recording the King's Hall podcast because it overlapped quite a bit with it. It's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution by Carl Truman, Dr. Carl Truman. he was in that documentary we watched. Yeah, he's a very, very smart man. So he's a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. Oh, no way. Yeah, contributes a lot at First Things. Uh, Church historian fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and he's written quite a few books. So uh, this book was really fascinating for a few reasons. It went through, uh, Truman traced the historical roots of this idea of the, or this conception of the modern self that's very popular today, almost overwhelmingly ubiquitous, this cultural, um, sexual, psychological, political self. Mm-hmm the way that people view themselves as like a sexual being who is who finds his chief you know glory in expressing his individualistic self to the world kind of like rousseau yeah rousseau's okay. definitely factors in and he goes through and and basically traces a theory at least of where this comes from and hmm. goes all over the place rousseau goes into lgbtq 
that movement and uh, a lot of even the internal conflict of that movement. He goes through different mm. eras and times. We talked about it a lot on the King's Hall, but definitely a, a book that has shaped the way I think about a lot of things in the modern self, in the world of sexual identity. But truly just a great book. I mean, everybody who reads it, who's read it, it's it's been almost universally acclaimed. I'm sure there's critics of it here or there or different points, but it truly is just a, an, an incredible book. Yeah, I remember Becky Pliego posting a lot about it when she was reading yeah. through it. So Grove City, my grandparents, their friends were some of the founders of Grove City College. Oh, man. Yeah. I, it's a bummer. I, f I keep hearing that Grove City's pretty much woke now. Oh, I mean, I, mean, I don't doubt it because yeah. it's back, back east. Yeah. Wait, so is that part of why you were feeling like, eh, I'll pass? There were other things. I'm trying to remember now. There, there's this whole like world of feminism infiltrating the church that I know Truman was some on some level involved in. But yeah, you're right. He was in Matt Walsh's documentary. Yeah. Truman was. I forgot. It. You're right. Yeah. And he was really solid in it. Because I yeah. remember you saying, oh, I'm kind of surprised he's saying this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he did a good job in that documentary. I don't. I'm, I mean, I'm sure they edited it down quite a bit yeah, from yeah. what he everything he said. But yeah, that book was very, very uh, insightful. He goes through, and it's been a minute since I've read it, so now I'm trying to remember the different categories that he, he used. He talked about the political self, the sexual oh, self, okay. and he, he sort of traced each... He talked a lot about Freud uh, and, and Jung, and he talked about Rousseau. And mm. So there's just a lot in the romantic poets. Um, oh, that would be. Yeah, because th th that all relates to how yeah, totally. these ideas got into the mainstream culture. It's funny on. because people can look at the romantic poets, Christians look at the romantic poets and understand that, but they don't look at romantic art and understand that. Yeah. Romantic art is modern art. <laughs> A topic for another time. <laughs> topic for another time, indeed. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a little it's more deceptive because romantic art is beautiful and still real has a lot of realism, and it's yeah, not what comes to mind when people no. think of modern art. They think of cubism or they think of like yes, these, yeah, these abstractism and surrealism. Uh, but romantic, I mean, romantic art. There's lots of it. It's beautiful and it's it very is, it's very beautiful, skillfully done. And it is one of my favorite. A lot of romantic stuff. art also portrays things that genuinely are beautiful as beautiful. Yeah, they do that accurately. But there's definitely, uh, there's some poison in the in the punch. Part of say. it was because they had already taken a step, the school of art philosophy before them had already taken a step towards modernism and the romantics realized they're wrong, but I don't want to go back to classical art. So instead we'll be romantic about the past. That's how that happened, mm -hmm. but it's still modern. Yeah, it's still modern. So Rousseau and the Noble Savage and the yeah, all of that. So definitely <laughs> pick up if you haven't read Truman's book huh. yet. Has he written any other books you know of? Uh, he's written tons of tons oh, okay. of different books. Um, but I and I think I've even read several other books by him, but none of them like come come to mind. I don't know why, but when I think about that book, I always think of an American version of Scruton's books. <laughs> it, it, he Scruton would definitely. Uh, agree with a lot, I think, okay. of what he says in this book. I want to read more Scruton this next year. That's one of my goals. Yeah, I I need to read Scruton as well. I'll I, I'll get you some. Yeah, we should definitely do that. He's he's so good. What I've seen of him, but I I don't feel like I know him. Uh, Layla posts 
his quotes sometimes on her blog and I'm always like, Oh my mm. goodness. I need yeah. to just read his yeah. stuff. But okay. Excellent. What was our next category? The next category is nonfiction. What was your top nonfiction? Oh, top nonfiction, non, non-theological, non-Christian. Uh, easy. It was Patrick Buchanan's Churchill, Hitler and the unnecessary war, how Britain lost its empire and the West lost the world. Uh, this was a book that, so I've read a lot of Churchill biographies in World War. Obviously, every man hits about 25, and he <laughs> has to decide whether he's going to become obsessed with World War II with, you know, there's a, there's a list of things. It's like World War II, Sasquatch. Um, <laughs> Is this prescriptive or descriptive? <laughs> or I feel like at this point it's prescriptive because okay. it's so common. Um so World War II is one I've I've read a lot about a lot read a lot about D Day. I've read several Churchill biographies, including uh, Churchill's Memoirs of the Second World War um, series that he that Churchill himself wrote. And so I've gotten a lot of like the normie perspective on World War II. I'd call it, and a, a lot of it's very good. But this book by Patrick Buchanan is sort of a dipping your toe into non normie perspectives of World War II and the global political scene surrounding World War II, and it does not paint the standard picture of basically Hitler as Satan incarnate, Churchill as, the the, you know, Messiah, messianic figure, and, you know, all of the American leaders as essentially messianic figures as well, entering World War II to save the day. It's much more honest about the 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 sh- this more stark reality of the 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 fact that there were really uh, <laughs> just varying shades of bad guys when you get to the top level yeah. of the political scene. Yeah, kind of like today. <laughs> yeah, it, very similar to today. Where I mean, um, he he makes a case. He he certainly paints a picture of Churchill as very much uh, obsessed with war and desiring war. He paints a picture of, he attempts to discredit the idea that Hitler was bent on conquering the world. Interesting. What does um, he think he was up to then? He, he believes Hitler had some, some reasonable and some completely unreasonable. Oh, okay. But more uh, modest land goals in claiming okay. different areas. And um, he goes through. And th- that Churchill just pushed him over the edge, basically. Well, it's it's like I know it's more complicated guys. than that. Yeah, you'd have you have to read the book. Ever since get... you've read this book and told me about the concept of it, every time I read or hear anything from that time period, I'm like, "But what did this guy say in that book?" I know book? <laughs> it, it is like that though. There's, he... there's been a lot of war books you've read that I've had no interest in, but I want to. Is that one on our Audible? I think it might. Yeah, because I want to yeah, listen to that I think one. It is. In the in the Amazon description, I think this is pretty good. He said it says in this monumental and provocative history, Patrick Buchanan makes the case that if not for the blunders of British statesman Winston Churchill, first among them, the horrors of two world wars and the Holocaust might have been avoided, mm. and the British Empire might never have collapsed into ruin. Half a century of murderous oppression of scores of millions under the iron boots of communist tyranny might never have happened, and Europe's central role in world affairs might have been sustained for many generations. Among the British and Churchillian errors were the secret decision 
of a tiny cabal in the inner cabinet in 1906 to take Britain straight to war against Germany should she invade France. It's talking about the both world wars, by the way. I forgot to mention that. The Vengeance Treaty of Versailles that mutilated Germany, leaving her bitter, betrayed, and receptive to the appeal of Adolf Hitler. Britain's capitulation at Churchill's urging to American pressure to sever the Anglo-Japanese alliance, insulting and isolating Japan, pushing her onto the path of militarism and conquest. That that section is actually one of the most fascinating, the way in which um, Western powers actually insulted the Japanese powers and ended up pushing them towards war. And then the greatest hmm. mistake in British history, the unsolicited war guarantee to Poland of March 1939, ensuring the Second World War. So there's obviously lots of controversy around a book like this. Oh, yeah. But Churchill tends to create like a clique of historians who are Churchill devotees. Oh yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Cause he's such a powerful personality. He's very likable. Uh, and obviously there, I mean, I've read a lot of him. I think he's, you've a read his, man. his own writing, his too. own writing. So Buchanan is a great historian goes through. It's very well written, but it's also very provocative in, and I think at the end of the day, it's one of those books that makes you realize that there's no, just simple, straightforward, the objective yeah. story. And also, if you think about it, like we should expect to be, you know, we should expect to be fed a narrative. If we're being oh, fed yeah. a narrative on everything else in the mainstream, <laughs> why wouldn't we? Don't be fed believe a any of the war histories anymore. Yeah, see, this is a, it's a great book, and and it's a. Uh, so speaking of it being water. controversial, yeah. Did you say controversial? Yeah, I did. What I'm going to say, though, is what does he What's think yours? about the conspiracy Oh, with Hitler? Did he die? <laughs> oh, yeah, he died. Did he? Yeah, he died. Is that what he says in the book? I mean, he doesn't even get into it. He just assumes that that's correct. Okay, okay. Interesting. Uh, yeah, very. I think he just, he's not that, he's not like that kind of conspiracy. No, no, I just, I you said controversial, and it reminded oh, yeah, me yeah. of the Hitler conspiracy. Yes. That's all. Did Hitler die? <laughs> did he go to South America? We don't know. We need to do like a Brian and Lexi un- unhinged, unhinged after hours. In the it would get us. Yeah. We have to put it out. Like we'd have to email it to you all directly. So we yeah, you guys, we're everything. not trying to like not put out more of our Patreon content. We're trying to figure out how to do it in a way that's not going to get us canceled. So anyways, um, my favorite nonfiction was the timeless way of building. That's, by oh, Christopher yeah. Alexander. Tell us about it. I, have long wanted to read this book. Um, it is a four-part series. I have the first two. I don't know if I'll get the next two. Um, Layla talks about a pattern language a lot on her blog, which a pattern language is um, just basically a book about how to create little spots of character in your home and on your property and in towns and in like city buildings and stuff. But the timeless way of building is mo- more almost about like, why are we drawn to the same characteristics as humans in general? Like, what is it about humanity that we like nooks and crannies yeah, and columns and windows with lots of panes? Like, what does that say about us as humans? And then what have we lost? Anyways, so I, I've read a lot of, the pattern language that's kind of more of a reference book which it has helped me a ton i don't know if you have noticed or if you would feel this way 
but it has definitely helped me break up small design projects in the house mm-hmm. and use that book for reference. But um, I mean, it was the week I found out I was pregnant, but I started the Timeless Way building that week and it was so beautiful and moving that I literally was crying. I was like, this is explaining <laughs> everything about why I feel depressed when I go out in our city and I look at the architecture around me. Mm-hmm. But part of why it's been so good is because he makes such a good case in the beginning for like how we can recover this. Like we're not lost without hope essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of controversy surrounding whether or not his steps are doable in today's society where the city rules so much of your codes And I have mixed thoughts there as well because there's only so much you can implement if somebody is standing over you saying, nope, you can't use that sort of siding or nope, that doesn't exist anymore unless you want to pay a million dollars for it. Mm. But there's just really, I think there's a lot. The more I study architecture and design, the more I realize there's like a, let's see. So with, with, with math, we have handed down a tradition of math to Mm -hmm. our children that is, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, fractions, all that stuff. There used to be a pattern language of architecture that everybody understood because everything was built on a human scale without machinery. So that's part of what he's trying to do is like, what are these basic human things that everyone used to know how to do and know how to spot that Mm. essentially you, you know, when you Mm. walk into a room, why you like it, but because we're so used to minimalism, if you will, we don't know how to name it anymore. They used to know how to name it. So this the, this series of books is giving you a name for it so you can recover it for yourself. Mm. So it's because it's it's this first book is more philosophical than it is practical. It's been extremely like life-changing in the way I've thought through other things this year. Yeah. So our last book would be the book you read this year that you think everyone else should definitely pick up easy oh god easy easy i everybody needs to be king alfred maxing that's what i think everybody needs to read benjamin merkel's the white horse king the life of alfred the great this is a very short very uh readable biography as the brits would say of king alfred the great Alfred is an Anglo-Saxon king, and a lot of his life was spent unifying the kingdom. This was like before Britain was just one big, even like the island of Britain, before it was ruled basically by one king. Albion. (laughs) Yeah. Albion Shores. It was attacked by the Danes continually, the Northmen, and um, Benjamin Merkel does a tremendous job in this book of weaving together basically the three parts of Alfred's story in showing why Alfred is the only British king, the only Briton who is called the great Alfred, the great uh, he, he goes through the early history of essentially the Anglo-Saxon world being completely routed in many ways by the Danes to the point where it was almost, almost completely conquered. Like it almost didn't exist anymore. Alfred was, fought for his life on the run, basically in hiding at one point on an island with his devoted followers from which he staged a comeback, goes out and routes the Danes. And then the second part of his life where he 
as a king establishes this, exercises very wise rule in recovering the defense and establishing a system of defenses to prevent the Danes from, the Danes would just come in on these dragon boats and they would literally plunder and rape and kill. They would go into the monasteries, they would go into the churches and they would kill everybody there. This was pre-1000. And uh, they would just go and murder everybody, steal their money and then leave burn their crops, all, all that sort of thing. And a lot of the, the rulers would just bribe them. They'd pay them the Dane Geld, which is like a, a bribe, gold for the Danes is basically what it meant. And they would go and uh, just bribe them to leave. But Alfred uh, reestablished defense, and then he worked in the latter part of his life to reform the, legis- the, the legal system of the Anglo-Saxons and recover literacy. Oh, and cool. training in the liberal arts and uh, Anglo-Saxon. He translated personally many of the Psalms oh, wow. and many works from Latin in Anglo-Saxon. He was a true, what are they called? Which he is had it to Maverick learn. Man or Renaissance, Renaissance Man? Man? Yeah, he's just, what to say? Alfred is my... If we end up with Man. a boy, don't be surprised. If I'm naming Alfred. I'm naming him. Listen, I went Listeners. a couple years ago. I don't know. It was, it was whatever we were studying in Ambleside was when I first came across his story. And mm-hmm. I was like, my next son is going to be Alfred. I don't care what Brian says. So I'm, I've been really happy that you stumbled upon his this. His first name, <laughs> our son, if he's a no, son. No, no. His first name is going to be King. You guys his middle help name me. is going to be Alfred. Help me. Because last, last time. Name, no, he will have a second middle name. It will be The Great. Mm-mm. It will be mm-hmm. King Alfred the Great. Sylvain. This is almost as bad as you told when you told me that Albus was the only option for another boy's no, first I, name. I was always kidding about that. <laughs> I'm 100% serious about I know this. No, you are. I'm going to name I'm our son find King another Alfred. name for King. Although it was cool today when we were looking through names, we realized every one of our boy boys have King Lee as part of their names, which is cool. So yeah, that's a cool book. So read it. The White Horse King, Life of Alfred the Great. Great Christian ruler, may his spirit uh, live on, and may we have many other such kings and yeah. potentates in the Christian world. What about you? Um, mine was a primer on worship by Pastor Wilson. Oh, okay. I yeah, it's a good book. Felt like that book was so eye opening to me, and there is so much that I did not know about the church. <laughs> And just like fellowship and Sunday and I was just so jazzed about church after that. Like, I mean, I'm already excited about Sunday church, but just like what yeah. the church is, what the fellowship is, um, what membership, I mean, all of it was so new to me. And I picked it up actually because of that interview that Eric did on the King's Hall with Chocolate Knox. Mm-hmm. I think he had kind of said like when they got up to Moscow, he was like, why is everything the way it is up here? Mm. And then he read the book, A Primary Worship, and he realized why everything was the way it was. Yeah. And so I read that. And I just think there's so many Christians out there that don't even know half of the story of what we're living really. Yeah. Because we have such dumbed down Christianity and ecclesiology and all of it. And this isn't even from a like Presbyterian perspective, but it was so, I just, realize what a rich inheritance I have, I guess. Yeah. yeah. It was really, really good. That is a great book. So, yeah. Excellent. I think that's kind of it. So we're going to go do an in the kitchen now, right? Yeah, we're going to head over. So 
Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, in this In the Kitchen, we're going to be answering some listener questions here in a minute. And that's an episode that we record with every main episode um, just for our patrons at patreon.com who support the show, help make it happen. So there's a link in the description. If you'd like to help support this podcast, continue to make it possible. You can support us there and get the whole back catalog of In the Kitchen episodes often very practical short episodes where we you know go through a medicine cabinet everything from that to this sort of listener Q&A model that we're going to be doing today and of course thanks to our sponsor for this episode Garlands of Grace for uh, helping make this episode possible we hope that you guys will share it with your friends give us a five star review wherever you're listening and we will catch you next time on Bright Hearth